there. Welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Today, we're continuing our series called Blind Faith. Throughout the series, we're going to question common assumptions and beliefs held within capitalist societies concerning capitalism itself. These truths are either unconsciously accepted, influencing our lives and our relationships without our being aware of them, or they are consciously accepted as simply the way things are. And on the rare occasion these assumptions and beliefs are questioned, we are told said beliefs are unquestionable and indisputable. All we need to do is trust a requirement we found in the previous episode to be conflicting with the faith Jesus embodied, as well as the faith of the Canaanite dissenter. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about some things that I know can be really, really challenging for folks to even discuss. But before we panic, I just want to name the fact that in our society, it is hard for many to even discuss the basic pillars of capitalism. And I think it's hard because these pillars have been divinized and sacralized. They've been covered with transcendence and immutability, which has only reinforced their unquestionableness. But when an individual, community, or society refuses to critically reflect upon themselves, their behaviors, or the ideas to which they subscribe, they close themselves off from potentially meaningful transformation. All this to say that while reflecting on the fundamental pillars of capitalism may, for some of us, feel uncomfortable, let's stay open to the possibility of seeing our world through a new lens. In this episode of Faith and Capital, we're going to discuss what capitalism says is its ultimate intent, social harmony, and how it sets out to achieve it, the production of wealth. We will focus primarily on what we'll talk about as private capitalism. Uh, We're going to do some market messianism. Uh, We're going to reflect on a predicament capitalism often puts us in. And finally, we'll see if the story of the rich man has anything helpful to share concerning our predicament. All right, let's do it. So, social harmony, or maximum well-being for the greatest number has long been articulated by the various capitalist theories as the ultimate intent of the system of capitalism. I like to use the language of relational well-being in the beloved community. You may use the kingdom of God, but the articulated goal of social harmony, in which capitalism says it's pursuing, parallels what we talk about when we talk about realizing earth as it is in heaven, or what have you. I'm sure we'd all, of course, have our differences as to what that actually means and looks like, but the point is that social harmony has been commonly understood in capitalist societies as capitalism's primary goal since Adam Smith first penned it. But perhaps it's most helpful not to speak of capitalism, but of capitalisms, because there are numerous and different kinds of capitalisms, a reality we don't often hear about. Capitalism is not singular. It's plural. Its many manifestations spanning the last three to four centuries have not at all been monolithic. And I've found the work of class theorists uh, Richard Wolff and Stephen Resnick to most helpfully articulate the plurality of capitalisms, 
But for those who are interested in reading books on economic theories in depth, I would recommend to all listeners of all reading levels to check out Democracy at Work by Richard Wolff. It's about, well, democratizing our places of work. In a compelling way, he reflects on the class structures of our workplaces and of all the places that we buy our needs and wants from. But he also talks about the pendulum of capitalisms that swing from more or less private to more or less state-managed capitalisms. If you're interested, I highly recommend it. All right, now uh, back to capitalisms. In the 1870s, the ruling capitalist economic theory in the U.S., classical theory, was replaced by neoclassical theory. Neoclassical theory was replaced by Keynesianism in the 1930s, and eventually Keynesian theory lost its seat to the Iron Throne in the 1970s by the return of neoclassical theory, which some have referred to as a kind of neoliberal capitalism. And while Keynesians and neoclassicists, again, both theories are capitalist, have major disagreements over the role of the state, uh, how much the market should or shouldn't be planned, and, and even the nature of humanity. Ultimately, both leave untouched the capitalist organization of relationships in our workplaces, which separates those who directly perform the surplus labor, right, the workers or employees, from those who appropriate and distribute the newly produced surplus the employers, the board of directors, and sometimes the major shareholders. And in cases where it's uh, the capitalism is state-managed, <laughs> state officials. But despite their disagreements over who is more efficient, Keynesian and neoclassical theorists alike also aim to achieve endless economic growth. Because at the end of the day, capitalism assumes that maximum wealth production makes all things well. But since the mid-1970s, the dethroning of the Keynesianism and of Keynesianism and the re-emergence of neoclassical theory's dominance, the U.S. capitalist economy, once leaning more toward the state-managed and structural pull of capitalism, swung across the pendulum in the other direction, toward a more individualistic, corporatized, and private capitalist manifestation. And this swing toward the private capitalism pole, especially in the U.S., but really across most of the world, was done so on sacred ground. Built upon the two sacred institutions of private property and competitive markets, in a quote-unquote perfectly balanced market, maximum wealth production is said to inevitably result in maximum well-being. And that's because maximum wealth production allows for maximum wealth consumption. And you know what maximum consumption is equivalent to? Yep, optimum well-being. But it is the two foundational pillars holding up the heavens of private capitalism, both private property and market competition, that makes the greatest production of wealth even possible which, in a perfectly balanced market, will ultimately lead to the highest achievable state of human well-being. Okay, that was a lot there, so let me just say that again a little more briefly, but in reverse. Maximum well-being is equivalent to maximum consumption, 
in maximum consumption is only possible when you produce the greatest amount of wealth. And a society can only produce its greatest possible amount of wealth, according to uh, uh, private capitalism, if it, at all costs, protects the two foundational pillars of private property and competitive markets. Essentially, privatization and competition are the magic keys to the gates of human flourishing and social harmony. One might imagine the importance of the pillars to more free-market, private-leaning capitalisms in this way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God gave us private property, competitive markets, and the natural ability to produce so that we could achieve maximum consumption. God gave us all these things, but told us not to eat from the tree of knowledge, because if we did, we would fall away from God to all that is other than privatization, competition, and the maximum production of wealth. And I know that that may seem like a uh, silly way of thinking about it, but the failure to reach maximum wealth production, the inability to privately possess and commodify land or natural materials, in a market that isn't full of competitive individuals and corporations, is to free market capitalism what the fall is in Genesis. The worst thing imaginable! All right, so, I mean, since the 70s, the invisible hand of the free market, in particular, has gradually been accepted across the world as a sort of savior. The free market is truly thought of as a messianic spirit. And I want to use this popular Christian language here, partially because that is literally how many private capitalist societies have spoken of it, but also because I think it can help us understand some of its basic claims. The free market saves us from the consequences of our sin and protects us from evil. Let's start with its salvific capacity. Human beings, neoclassical theory suggests, are sinful in that we are primarily selfish and self-interested individuals. Again, this theory doesn't actually use the religious language, but the parallels, I believe, can be made. And the brilliance of this particular kind of capitalism is that it takes humanity's inerrant selfishness and channels it for the good of everyone, thereby saving us from the disharmony and chaos and suffering that would result if capitalism didn't channel our sinful nature. On the one hand, we are thought to be these perfectly knowledgeable, rational, and productive beings. And on the other hand, we are consumed with ourselves. And this kind of capitalism claims to efficiently organize selfish human individuals toward realizing the good of everyone by channeling individuals' productive capacities. In this sense, it identifies itself as a socially organizing invisible messiah, which saves us from the consequences of our individual sinful natures. This form of private capitalism also, continuing in our use of religious language, is said to protect us from evil. And it does so with its commitment to privatization, right? private property, and competition, competitive markets. The evil in which it protects us from is basically governmental limitation on individual choice, because any unfreedom put upon an individual's ability to choose or illegal constraint on competition between individuals and corporations in the market is believed 
to keep societies from producing its greatest amount of wealth. And how is social harmony best realized? The production of wealth! You don't want to impede that. So private capitalism protects us from evil by endowing every individual and corporation, because both corporations and actual human beings are legally thought of as persons, with freedom. But freedom is particularly defined like this. To be free is to individually produce, consume, and possess without legal restraint. Freedom is measured by an individual's ability to privately produce, consume, and possess without external limitations. And this freedom is the pinnacle of being human, the greatest blessing we could ever know, the promised land to which the messianic market has delivered us. Now, there's lots that could be said here, but let's focus on one major aspect of this all. For now, I want us to ask the question, what happens when the production and pursuit of wealth does not lead to social harmony or relational well-being? Next episode, we're going to ask if, in the last 50 years, economic growth has benefited everyone, or if it has disproportionately benefited a few. But today, I thought it'd be important to first question this fundamental assertion that capitalism pursues maximum wealth production ultimately for the sake of social harmony. Because capitalisms across the state-managed and private enterprise spectrum say that the maximum production of wealth is the primary means of achieving social harmony for a society. And while I'm all for relational well-being and realizing the beloved community in our relationships and in our lives, it doesn't seem like the production of wealth necessarily leads to human and environmental flourishing. For example, look at the turmoil that often emerges from the capitalist class structure that we talked about in the episodes uh, 1 through 4. Capitalism divides the workers who perform the surplus or extra labor, those who directly produce the surplus goods and services, from those who appropriate and distribute the newly produced surplus. Basically, Employees are excluded from democratically directing the enterprise that continues to exist because of their own labor. This is because more of the profits would likely end up in the workers' pockets if the employees actually got to have a say in things. The capitalist way of organizing our workplaces into employers and employees pits the two against each other. It doesn't matter if the workers are overworked, are crushed with medical or school debt, are struggling to find affordable housing. It doesn't matter if workers have to spend more and more time away from family and friends at work so that they can have food, housing, health care, and maybe some education. The capitalist class structure of our workplaces concentrates decision-making power into the hands of the few at the expense of the many. And this divisive class structure can lead to familial conflicts at home, personal depression influenced by the lack of dignity and power experienced at work, uh, health problems due to being overworked, or resentment and hostility between employers and employees. All this seems to contribute to situations where the health and well-being of workers and their communities are second 
to the profits appropriated by employers. A more particular situation, well-being has been rendered second to capitalist economic growth, is in the historical development of big agriculture. Big ag has perhaps most obviously continued to choose profits over people, and economic growth over environmental sustainability. First off, we could look at how big ag has wiped out our small farming communities throughout rural U.S. America. Numerous consequences have resulted. Big ag has displaced entire farming communities, forcing them to move into overcrowded urban areas for more corporatized work. It has greatly reduced the diversity of crops, which has destroyed the biodiversity of our topsoil. It has transformed food into cheap, chemically-induced poison by using chemicals for crop production. These chemicals have also directly destroyed the flesh and lungs of many, often migrant, laborers who have no choice but to work the fields. It's wiped out grasslands, lobbied for the rerouting of natural waterways, and emptied underground water reserves, which have devastated ecosystems. Since private big ag corporations were able to outcompete their small farm competitors, the devastation has been deemed just. Because what could be better for farming communities and for the nation at large than an unrestrained, competitive free market where farmers increasingly, with less capital, lose out to wealthier big ag corporations? Let's do one more. What kinds of problems might people in a capitalist society run into when their pharmaceuticals are privatized, like they are in the private capitalism of the U.S.? A pharmaceutical company who has monopolized a particular market might say, well, we think this medicine is worth 300 or 700 or $10,000. And since the company exclusively and privately possesses this particular medicine, and the privatization of this pharmaceutical that people need in order to live is protected by law as a sacred, divinely ordained institution, those who need that medicine in order to live are simply out of luck. Because for the sake of social harmony, private corporations must always be free to produce, consume, and possess without external constraint. And there's countless other examples we could discuss, but you got the picture. The pursuit of wealth doesn't always lead to social harmony. Maximum wealth production doesn't always lead to individual, communal, and environmental well-being. And when it comes down to health or wealth, Capitalism, it seems, tends to choose wealth. And so as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, how might our Christian faith speak to this push and pull between wealth and well-being when the production of wealth does not lead to the relational well-being of God's beloved creation? Well, I think we have plenty of theological resources to engage the conflict and tension that often arises between wealth and well-being. I couldn't help but think about the story of the rich man, as it's told in the Gospel of Mark, or the rich young ruler, as it's referred to in the other Gospels. And while in this story, found in chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus isn't talking about various capitalisms, he's not talking about class in terms of the production and appropriation of surplus, he's not even talking about the production of wealth in general. Jesus does suggest, however, that the wealth of the rich man is incompatible with his vision of the abundant life, which is constituted by the first being last and the last being first. Let's take a look. 
A rich man comes up to Jesus and asks, what do I got to do to receive eternal or abundant life? And after Jesus criticizes the guy for equating him with God, Jesus tells him that he knows the teachings of Moses, the, the Torah, right? Follow them. And the guy's like, I'm good. At least on the ones Jesus rambles off. And this is where the story gets interesting. The rich man seems to have forgotten the economic implications of the teachings of Moses. And so Jesus tells him this. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Jesus then tells his disciples that it is impossible for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God, to faithfully follow Jesus. And if we subscribe to the idea that faithfully following Jesus is less about believing the right things, per se, and more about living and embodying God's desires and concerns in our relationships, then we can hear Jesus saying that wealth prevents the rich from faithfully living out and embodying the concerns of God, from living in right relationship with themselves, others, and the rest of the beloved creation. The only way that could happen, he says, is through a miraculous work of God, something we'll talk about here in a minute. And as if saying it's impossible for the wealthiest, most powerful people in his community to access the abundant life isn't enough, Jesus, in verse 31, wraps this whole thing up by claiming those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, this last line might seem a little out of place, right? I mean, the guy asks about eternal or abundant life. Jesus draws a line and the guy realizes he can't cross it. Jesus then tells the crew that only a miracle could save uh, really wealthy people. And then he depicts an alternative kingdom, an alternative community, which completely subverts the order of the world in which they lived in. This story, for some, might feel like it's jumping all over the place. But I think this last line, right, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, can serve as a sort of lens for the entire story. It could be said that there are two gods in this story. The first god, the god of wealth, is the god of top-down power. And this god concentrates wealth and power into the hands of a few at the expense of the many, thus maintaining an order in which the first are first and the last are last. The second god, the god of Jesus, is a god of bottom-up power, a god whose very presence is a threat to the god of exploitation and oppression. And this God is out to undermine, subvert, and completely reorder the flows of power and wealth, which lead to such great suffering and agony. The work of this God is not simply trying to redistribute the wealth that is originally possessed by the rich man. The work of this God is seeking to transform and reorder the relationships of the world. And just as we can see two very different gods who hold very different concerns, Jesus also invites us to choose between two kinds of faith, two ways of being that are at odds with one another. The first faith chooses wealth over well-being. 
maintaining the status quo order of firsts and lasts. But the second, and this is the one Jesus says we must choose to know the abundant life, is a faith which subverts the hierarchical and exclusive flows and structures of power. It resists the temptations to uphold the first in their positions of wealth. It confronts the world which concentrates suffering and exclusion upon the last. What are we to do when the production of wealth does not lead to social harmony, mutual well-being, human flourishing in planetary sustainability? What might a follower of the way have to say about an economic system which forces us to choose wealth over the livelihood of our neighbors, ourselves, and our friends? Capitalism, whether extremely private or state-managed, says that it pursues the maximum production of wealth for the sake of social harmony. Do we believe this to be true? And I'm not suggesting that capitalist production has not benefited people at all. As a critic, I think it's best to learn from its benefits. But when we are asked to passively trust that the production of wealth always leads to the well-being of God's beloved creation, I think we should ask ourselves, what kind of God capitalism is truly wanting us to serve? What kind of faith is it forcing us to live out? If one subscribes to the belief that God is for well-being over wealth, then we must, as the rich man did himself, make a difficult choice. A choice between people and profit, life and death. The well-being of God's beloved creation, which includes you and me, and the endless production of wealth.